Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's July 12th. 1917, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. There's union busting and then there's Bisbee union busting because it was today in history in 1917 that more than a thousand striking workers in the Arizona city of Bisbee were marched at gunpoint out of town by vigilantes, loaded onto cattle cars and transported 200 miles through the desert without food or water before being unceremoniously dumped in New Mexico and warned never to return. Yeah, and the optics are pretty unpleasant from, you know, a sort of post-Nazi lens. The striking men were first rounded up by these armed vigilantes who had just been deputised, and they were all pretty much civilians with a grudge. The strikers were then herded into a baseball field where they were kept for several hours and then forced into cattle cars. And there are photos of this. You know, they're walking basically a gauntlet of armed guards and they didn't know where they were going. There were 186 armed guards on the train and a machine gun mounted on the top as well. After enduring the 16-hour journey in baking heat, as you and as you mentioned, with no food and little water, they arrived in Columbus, New Mexico, where authorities refused to take them in. The trains turned around and then halted at a desolate outpost in the middle of the New Mexico desert called Hermanas. There they remained for a whole other day. You know, eventually food and water did arrive on another train until soldiers from the US Army were dispatched to escort them back to Columbus, where authorities were basically forced to give them shelter, which they did in a tent city that had been used as a refugee camp during the Mexican border war. And some of them ended up staying Mm. there for several months. Yeah, the whole event is extraordinary. Although, to be fair, like at the time in national newspapers was immediately decried as being extraordinary and something that should never happen in the United States, Uh, it became known as the Bisbee deportation. Um, Okay, so a little bit about Bisbee, Arizona, what it was and what these guys were doing there. So we're not far from the Mexican border there. It is a copper mining town uh, and was all the way until 1975 when the last copper mine shut down. And obviously in 1917, where we are in history, is just a few months after the US has entered World War I. Maybe not particularly relevant to most Americans' lives, but in Arizona it is because there's a moment suddenly where, A, there's a lot of money to be made out of copper, and B, one of the reasons that America's got involved in World War One is it's become known that Germany is trying to persuade Mexico to invade states like Arizona <laughs> and make them Mexico. So if you live there, you're very aware that this is happening. And at the same time, there's this IWW group, the Industrial Workers of the World, gaining traction across the US, an anarchist labour movement that believes in direct confrontations through general strikes and work slowdowns, And that's coming to Bisbee as well. Yeah, also Bisbee had grown into the third largest city in Arizona, partly because of this great mineral wealth. And you had this influx of a really diverse population from various European and 
Asian backgrounds who were really coming here to take advantage of the fact that there's copper to be mined. And, you know, also because of the city's proximity to Mexico, you had a significant Mexican presence. And consequently, all of this together meant that you had this real sort of melting pot, but an unhappy melting pot of racial subdivisions because Bisbee itself was also very uh, ghettoized. Yeah, and this was one of the reasons that the IWW and their nickname were the Wobblies, I'm not quite sure why, they were able to gain traction among the workforce in the town was because unlike other unions who often had a sectarian or ethnic roots, many of them excluded or segregated non-white workers, was that it actively recruited from minority groups. And in Bisbee, this meant Mexicans and immigrants from Southern Europe primarily who were being exposed to discrimination and unequal treatment. There had been other attempts to start unions, but madly, the closest thing they had to a union in Bisbee before this had been the Bisbee Industrial Association, a secretive organisation whose detractors believed it was the invention of the Copper Queen Mining Company, one of the big mining companies in the town. You know, this was a town where the mining companies owned the hospital, the department store, the library, they owned the town newspaper. So for an organisation like the IWW to be able to infiltrate it at all was a huge deal. And it was... It was a relatively small union. It never accounted for more than 5% of the unionised workforce across the United States. It had this really oversized reputation for being a hotbed of radical agitation. You know, they were unafraid to advocate for tactics like sabotage. This loomed very, very large in the minds of bosses. So there was this fear that if the IWW were in town and getting workers signed up, then really extreme action was needed and justified in order to curtail it. Yeah, and that's why you can understand, from their point of view why the people who ran the mine and the sheriff, who was obviously largely in coots with them, it is a company town, would feel that outsiderness twice over, right? You've got the IWW coming from out of town, targeting Bisbee as a place they can grow their market share of union uh, workers and fostering resentment. You know, so who are these? It's not it's not a homegrown union. It's people coming from out of town saying we're going to unionize your workers. And then secondly, the reason they've targeted Bisbee is because there's a lot of immigrants there. Immigrants who you in your design of this company town have ghettoized, as you say, Arian, into different districts. So the Mexicans live in one bit and the Slavic ones live in another bit. And then layered on top of all of that, you've got this war stuff going on. Mm. And Sheriff Wheeler, who was the head honcho there, particularly detested the IWW because they advocated resisting the military draft. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, the list of demands that they had for mine owners, like the reason that they went on strike in the first place, seemed utterly reasonable. They wanted more safety, things like having two workers on each drilling machine, two men working the ore elevators, etc. You know, basically having some really rudimentary safety provisions so that people didn't come to harm. Yeah, one of their demands were not actively blasting in mines while the miners were right there inside them. Yeah, that seems okay by me. That seems a sensible one. But they also wanted to see the replacement of the sliding scale of wages with just this $6 per day shift rate with no discrimination against either union members, because obviously IWW members were being targeted, but also the different racial groups who were ending up working in the mines. And you can easily imagine that this sliding scale of wages was putting the white guys at top and uh, 
and other people further down. And the mining companies hid behind patriotism. You know, they claimed the war effort meant that none of those demands could be implemented. For some reason, we still need to keep throwing charges into the mines and blasting while you're in there because of the war with Germany. Um, So on the 27th of June, a strike was called involving around half the town's mining workforce. And the pushback was immediate. Rumours spread in town that the Bisbee strike was being pushed by German sympathisers trying to undermine American industry. I mean, you can guess who might have started those rumours. And the state governor, Thomas Edward Campbell, petitioned President Woodrow Wilson to send federal troops to break the strike, claiming the whole thing appears to be pro-German and anti-American. Wilson did decline, and that led to the events on this day, the deportation. So at 6.30 on the morning of this day, a special edition of the local newspapers were published, which included a warning from Sheriff Wheeler ordering women and children to keep off the street and instructing his deputies to arrest, quote, on charges of vagrancy treason and of being disturbers of the peace, all men who have congregated here from other parts for the purpose of harassing and intimidating all men who desire to pursue their daily toil. And then who was it that was enforcing these rules? Because, you know, there wasn't a large enough police force to do that. It was, as you alluded to earlier, this kind of self-appointed group of locals, this deputised posse of 2,000 people called the Citizens Protective League. Nothing sinister there. It's a name that reminds me of when we were talking about the Black Donnellys a couple of weeks ago and the so-called peace committee that killed them. You know, they had white handkerchiefs tied around their arms, again, bit Nazi, to identify who they were to each other. So if you're wearing a white handkerchief, you weren't being deported. You were doing the deporting. And they were armed. And during the arrests, deputies started seizing cash from registers and looting some of the places. And then they did this thing where they marched uh, all of the uh, miners and supporters and various random citizens uh, to Warren Ballpark, the, the local baseball ground. And along the way, two men died. One was a deputy who was shot by a miner who he had tried to arrest. And the other was the miner himself who was shot by three deputies moments later. So it was a pretty chaotic scene altogether. Yeah, and I should also say that the posse had first seized control of the telegraph office and the telephone exchange to prevent any communication mm. to or from the outside, you know, before they started these raids, which involved you know, bursting into people's homes. They were literally dragging people out of their beds. Many of whom had wives and kids as well. Like they'd moved to Bisbee because it's a company town where you get well paid and you get a house and there's a community and a school. And then suddenly you're being dragged off in whatever you happen to be wearing to go who knows where and your family yeah. left behind. And so when they got them to Warren Ballpark, keeping in mind that these men are surrounded by armed guards, they offered those who agreed to quit striking and put on a white armband, they said that they could leave. And about 800 people of the 2,000 detainees did take that offer up. The majority refused. And that's really brave, you know. They were literally at gunpoint. I mean, you know, you've got this unfolding, disastrous, semi-authoritarian thing in Bisbee. But simultaneously, you've got all of these people who have been dumped in New Mexico, which after all is still the United States which is a potential humanitarian catastrophe that's happening within U.S. borders. And the Republican governor, Washington Ellsworth Lindsay of New Mexico, immediately was like, um, I'm not sure that I want this on my doorstep and contacted <laughs> President Wilson and asked for assistance. Wilson actually ordered U.S. Army troops to escort the men to Columbus, New Mexico, where they were then housed in tents. I mean, it still sounds pretty horrific. And many of them, as Rebecca was saying, stayed there for quite a while. And many of them then just dispersed over the the months to come. But really, this was a, a plan that seemed to have no end point, no sort of sensible, oh, well, this is what we'll do 
do with them once we get them there? It's a very, very strange event, but it's one that's come to be seen as uh, symbolic of, I suppose, the way that America has struggled with unionization. And like I said, there was almost immediately blowback on it nationally. There was a presidential mediation commission investigating the actions by November of this year, despite the fact that America was fighting a war at this point. And in its final report did describe the deportation as, quote, wholly illegal and without authority in law, either state or federal. But despite that, no one, nobody was ever convicted in connection with the deportations. And for decades, this was, I think, a bit of an awkward slice of history for the residents of Bisbee. But by 2017, it was reenacted for the centenary. The wow. whole town of Bisbee came together and reenacted this moment with people either being the miners or the people doing the deporting. 16 hours later, the people who are doing the miners are like, I really wish I'd picked to be in the posse. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> moves into a house with hundreds of rooms is like, you know what this right. needs to be? It's a bit bigger. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. <laughs> 